Okay. You all got quiet without me. That's fun. Make sure I'm hooked in here properly. All right. Good morning. Welcome to Newbreed Church. We're happy to have you this morning. Um, I'm going to be honest. I'm happy to be here this morning. Uh, I looked around this room as we were singing songs uh, to our Lord, to our Creator, to our God, and I thought, this is my home. This is my home. I'm from Chicago. Um, I'm a black man. I guess you already noticed that, but this is my home. If you are here visiting or if you're here as a brother and sister in Christ and you have had feelings of where do I belong, you belong in the body of Christ if you're a believer, and this is your home. We love you. We need you. I love you. I need you. And this is our home together. And I'm so thankful to be here this morning. I know we um, were out last week. My sister-in-law got married on my birthday. Uh, that was great. Uh, <laughs> no, it was good. It was good. And um, I just prayed over their covenant. I, w- I did not officiate it. Somebody else did. But um, my wife has been great. Uh, we have three kids who are not here. They're in child care. But thank you, honey. I love you. Thank you so much. Um, yes, thank you, and I love you so much. And I know um, I'm tired, but I'm also excited to be here just to share this word with you this morning. Um, we will continue to go through the book of Colossians. Actually, there's only one more sermon left in the book of Colossians. So, and I don't even know who's preaching next week. Yeah, we have a guest pastor next week. And so um, this will end my time with you in the book of Colossians, and I hope you've enjoyed it. And I hope that you have felt love by the word. I hope you've seen uh, Christ highly exalted. I hope you've um, just seen how much he's given himself for you in this season. And so um, I'm Pastor Lance, one of the pastors here at Newbury Church. And we're going to jump into Colossians chapter 3, verses 12. And we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter and to the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. Colossians 3, verse 12, up until chapter 4, verse 1. And I'm going to read it from my CSB. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have called us to this place, that you have called us not by accident, not by happenstance, but each and every one of us you have made intentionally. You have divinely designed us. You have carefully crafted us in Christ Jesus. And for that, we say thank you, Lord. Thank you that you have allowed us to gather around your word this morning, that we can sing spiritual songs and hymns, and we can lift high the name of Christ. And I pray that this word would be 
just so beautiful to the people of God, not because of me, but hide me, Father, and may your word shine through all of my imperfections, Father. Father, I pray that if this text is difficult for some of us this morning, I pray that you would go before us and and you would massage our hearts and you would intercede as you have already told us you would do, that we would trust you and look more like you. Father, thank you for this word and may you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You all didn't have to stand up for that, so that's free. One of the most significant seasons in my life, in fact, there were two, is when I was transitioning from high school to college, actually eighth grade to high school, and then high school to college. Maybe you all have a transition like that as well. Going, going into my first year of high school, I had never made the honor roll. I didn't know what it would be like. I knew that it was a few blocks from my house. I knew that it was a, a school known for its basketball skills. I didn't know any of the teachers. I didn't know who would be there. A few things I did know, like I figured, you know what? Uh, I would have different classes. I'd have to take a certain bus route. I'd have to try out for the baseball team. That was a fun experience. (laughs) There were new classes and new classmates and new teammates. The The school was new. The expectations were new. The grading scale was different. Everything seemed bigger and weightier, quite frankly. The other time I felt this um, transition season in my life hit me was going from high school to college. I'd graduated from a high school on the south side of Chicago, and now I had to come to central Kentucky, Kentucky State University, and the places are different, let me tell you. I went from taking the Chicago Transit Authority and the L to taking a bypass. (laughs) I went from a bus system that ran every five minutes to a bus system that ran every hour. There were new things I had to learn. I couldn't go by the old operating system. I had to try something different. And when I got an internship, I couldn't speak the same, right? I had a job now. I couldn't wear the same clothes that I was used to wearing. I had to learn how to put on different clothes. I, learned, I had to learn how to advocate for myself as a student My life was different. I had to do something different as a young professional. In fact, one of the biggest differences from my eighth grade year all the way up to college was that, once again, I've never made the honor up to this point. I've made C's and D's and some B's and C's and a few A's in gym class and maybe art, but even then I failed art. I had to do something different. The closest I got to the honor roll was Four A's and two C's in high school. Never got close in elementary school. Those two C's were pre-calculus and something else evil. So when I became a college student, things were different. I was able to make straight A's my freshman year, my first semester there. President's list, dean's list, but who cares? And I graduated. I had to do something different. I had to put on something different. Another illustration I have for you, if you uh, are into Disney, I know, you know we have friends who've been to Disney recently, uh, you know that Disney princesses are uh, m- magical, right? And so when the magic hits, they get new drip. When the magic hits them, they get new clothes. Yep. And the same is true for us. When the Spirit hit, uh, hits us in a particular way, when the Spirit just hits us, how about that? We get new outerwear. Y'all know where I'm going with this. Somebody gets new clothes. You ever know somebody who gets new clothes and they act like they don't know nobody? Yeah. Well, that should be us in a sense, right? Like, so the old Lance, the Lance they have to do something different spiritually, maybe shouldn't recognize that the the new Lance, let me say it that way, maybe shouldn't recognize the old Lance. Maybe I need to act a little brand new in a good way. I'm not prescribing ghosting friends after salvation, but there is a precedent in Scripture that we ghost the old self to leave the old flesh behind and to never contact him or she again. If they call, we ain't got to pick up. If they text, we ain't got to respond. If they knock on the door, we, we can act like nobody home. 
he or she don't live here no more. We can tell them that. We can tell them that. They don't live here no more. So you're like, brother, brother, where are you going with this? Friends, brothers, sisters, I'm giving you a picture of what earthly change looks like. But I want us to see in the text this morning what not. I want us to see that it's not only earthly change, but true everlasting biblical transformation in the believer, what that looks like. Biblical transformation is not just window dressing, it's heart reconstruction. Paul says, we who have died with Christ in the crucifixion are raised to life with the resurrection. It's cool. I became a better student. I got better grades. But true biblical transformation has an effect far beyond academics, my academics at least. What God did in my academics, he has a track record of doing in the hearts of atheists, agnostics, and Christians Yes, Christians, who live for aesthetics and not assurance of the risen Savior. As we will see in the text this morning, we clothe ourselves in his garments and love others in accordance with the new heart, mind, body, and soul that we've been given. I want to title this text this morning, as I haven't given it to you yet, Church Clothes. Church People Clothes. Church People Clothes. Life in Light of Our Glorious Hope, Part 2. Church people close. Life in light of our glorious hope, part two. As we continue in Colossians, we come to chapter 3, verse 12, all the way through 4.1. In these verses, Paul gives the Colossian church a layout of how they ought to relate to one another in light of who Jesus is. Paul gives them a more hopeful worldview, a more hopeful and satisfying view of God. Paul would have to be speaking to a church that was facing pressure from masochists, Judaizers, and Gnostics. Masochists, in Paul's day, felt they had to physically punish their bodies and deprive themselves to experience God. Judaizers were Jewish Christians that felt like if you got converted, if all of us got converted, because nobody's Jewish by, by heritage, right, then we would all have to get circumcised and follow the law. Judaizers. There were Jewish Christians who felt that converts needed to follow the Old Testament law to be considered faithful. Most notably, they encouraged circumcision for any Gentile wanting to follow Jesus. And then Gnostics, as we talked about before, were individuals who thought they could achieve salvation through special knowledge of God. So this is, these are all the people that are influencing the faithful church, I might add, in Colossus. Paul was trying to tell the church that the true transformation has nothing to do with how we harm our bodies, keep the law, or learn things about God. You might say, I don't do any of that. Mm, We might. But it's being clothed in the righteousness of God, and that is more glorious and more satisfying than any masochist or Gnostic nonsense. True community is not indulging in pain for the sake of satisfaction or even gaining knowledge for the benefit of, of the few. But true community raised up in Christ looks like putting on the things of God and living amongst the people of God. In Chicago, it's cold. The winters were bitter cold. You can ask my wife. And so I remember that when winter time came, you would put your basketball shorts away and you would put on your winter coat. But let's not get it twisted. Winter coats were a fashion statement in Chicago. There's 35 young men and women on a bus stop and everybody's got a winter coat on. So you're going to wear a winter coat, make it look nice, right? Winter coats were a fashion statement. You had people who wore big puffy coats. You had people, maybe some of y'all know this or not, you had those throwback jackets from the NBA back in the day. People would wear that with a hoodie underneath. Anybody know about those? <laughs> the winter coat you, gave, you put on gave you just as much credibility as any other out item in the outfit that you wore. Some guys wore Letterman, Letterman's, Michelin S jackets, pea coats, whatever you want to choose. Myself, I came across a green cotton winter coat. Might not look, sound like it's nice, but it was nice. It was Davucci. It was an earth green jacket, and I was like, man, this is a nice jacket. It was puffy, but not too puffy. It kept me warm. It looked good. The jacket matched with a lot of stuff that I had. And essentially, if the jacket matched the outfit, it would, set the out, it would hold the whole outfit together. It would bring it all together. The jacket was a staple in my outfit in the wintertime. One, because it looked good, and two, because 
It kind of just brought everything together. In these verses, as we talk about these different characteristics of the believer, Paul identifies love as doing the same thing in the Colossian church as that jacket did for me. It brings it all together. With all these other virtues, love is the one that holds all other virtues in place and makes it possible for any of those other virtues to occur. What I'm saying is, if you're good at hospitality but you don't love, then we miss the point. If I can do this with the other pastors and preach and teach, but I don't have love, then I'm missing something. Paul referenced that. And so as we gather together today and you hear some of these these virtues and these um, imperatives, let's not just do them because we're told to, but let's do them rooted in love in this community. My first point this morning, clothe in Christ in our community. Clothe in Christ in our community, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against one another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, here we go, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We just did that. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I love how Paul describes the life of the believer in this section. He reminds the Colossian believers, of things that we need to be reminded of each day. You are chosen. You are holy. You are set apart. You are dearly loved, verse 12 says. Our position in Christ allows us to perform in Christ. Let me say that again. Our position in Christ allows us to perform in Christ. Paul says this is who you are, chosen, Picked with purpose, holy, a people set apart, and dearly loved. That's our position. Then Paul says, this is what you do. Let the rule, let let rule the peace of Christ be thankful. Let dwell the word of Christ. Do everything in the name of the Lord. Sing with gratitude. Teach and admonish. Wives submit, husbands love, children obey, bondservants obey, masters deal justly perform. This is not a to-do list. This is a he did it list. And because he did it, we will show it. Amen. I was thinking about what Pastor Michael said last week about the, I'm I'm going to get this, indicative. Pastor Michael, (laughs) indicative. That's a tough one. I listened to it on the podcast, y'all. Indicative. But I know it's a $10 word, but But think about it. You have children, right? Like, what they do does not determine how you relate to them and how you love them. Like, if your child wastes their cookies or their apple juice or their juice, or if they write on the wall, they are still your child. It doesn't supersede the fact that they are your child from you. They're your son. They're your daughter. And you're going to love them regardless of how much Crayola they got on the table. How much more does God see us as dearly loved, chosen children, right? Our our identity in Christ, our place in Christ, calls us to walk as Romans 13, 14 tells us. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy fleshly desires. The flesh doesn't forgive. It finds the other person's faults. The flesh doesn't call us to bear with one another. It tells us to bail out. But when we are drenched in the spirit, clothed in the spirit, clothed in Christ, we set our minds on the things above, living like his supernatural meets our natural. Brothers and sisters, that is not called a superhero. That's called a saint. So what does this look like for Newbury? What does this look like for us? 
Imagine the next time you had a conflict with a brother or sister in the body. You approach them and say, my goal is to get you to see it. My goal is not to get you to see it my way, but to see you walk like somebody who is holy, chosen, and loved. That'd be hard to come back against, right? To see you the way God sees you and to see you perform according to your position and not according to your, your flesh. Holy, dearly loved, chosen. And with that new identity, we can forgive grievances. I love how Paul contextualizes the root of the Christian forgiveness with the colon here. He says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a grievance against one another, this is how we do it. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. That colon there means like, hey, I'm explaining this. So as we approach one another with, with grievances and, and sin and fault and, and hurt and hang up, man, we know that we've been forgiven beyond what we can even imagine. We don't even forgive on our own terms. We forgive as it's been modeled for us on God's own terms, not ours. Forgiveness should lead the brother or sister to look more like Christ. If we simply want them to do right by us, then I think we missed the whole point of the principle here. What would it look like if you were cut deep by a brother or sister's remarks or actions? Like it really hurt. Sin was committed against you. And they asked for genuine forgiveness in the Lord. And you forgave them in the spirit of the verses we just mentioned. How freeing would it be for the most hurtful thing you ever experienced to be made right in the spirit of genuine forgiveness? Brothers and sisters, what I'm about to say applies to me too. All of us pastors as well. We are not in the business of canceling one another after wrongdoing, but cultivating Christ in our relationships. Let me say that again. We're not in the business of canceling one another when hurt is done, but cultivating Christ in our relationships. It may be easier to write somebody off, but we're all are challenged, but we all of us are challenged to the ministry of reconciliation in accordance with the peace of God, as verse 13 tells us. This peace is to rule our hearts. New breed, we don't keep receipts because we don't keep a record of wrong. This is not me saying that we keep wolves that are harmful to the flock or that we condone any predatory behavior. But I am saying that where possible, we fight to put on the new self in our relationships. There's four imperatives here in verses 15 through 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be thankful. Let dwell the word of Christ. Do everything in the name of the Lord. That's how we function as a body of Christ. I wanted to share these imperatives so you can see what we're called to, called to do in light of the indicatives, meaning <laughs> what's true. Indicative, what is true of who we are. Imperative, a command. What do we do? Indicative is our position. Imperative is our perform. And love is the linchpin for all of these imperatives. Verse 14, and above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So if you don't have love, then you can't obtain peak performance in putting on the things of God. Let our lives be marked by this kind of love, a love that is the cornerstone of the Christian virtue. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, I referenced this earlier, if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Feels that way sometimes. If somebody's full of knowledge of, of the truth or they're very skilled at something, but man, you just don't feel that, that love. Man, it, it could be a little annoying, right? If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, you have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, yes, for our doers out there, for our helpers out there, if I give away all my stuff in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Let us not mistake spiritual gifting for love. 
Let us not mistake services for love. Let us not mistake hospitality for love. Let us not mistake teaching for love. But let us love sincerely, and in doing so, we can live in unity with one another in the Christian community. Let the word of Christ, verse 16 says, let the word of Christ Christ, dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 16 tells us to let the word of Christ dwell richly among us. So you have these Gnostics, right, who thought that, you know what, there could be a small group of people who can ascertain great knowledge and they can kind of huddle up and have all this knowledge to themselves. But, but Paul is like, no, Jesus wants this thing to look a lot differently than what they're modeling for you. In contrast, the gospel and the word of God and its influence is to be deep and wide in the community. The Bible reminds us as early as Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 19, imprint, this, is, this is God, this is Moses speaking to the people, imprint these words of mine on your hearts and minds, bind them as a sign on your hands, and let them be a symbol on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit on your house, when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Man, that don't sound like just a few people having a bunch of knowledge puffed up with pride, right? We teach the word of God to our children day and night. Proverbs 4 invites us into a conversation where a father is talking to a son about, remember my son, keep these commands. Let wisdom be your guide. Michael talked about indicatives last week. We need to tell our kids and our families and, and, and the body every time we gather, hey, brother, sister, seek the things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above and not on earthly things. I don't care if I'm not the smartest one here. I'm not the smartest one here. And I'm happy for that. I'm grateful for that. I want this whole body. I think our desire is for this whole body to show off Christ where life exists. That's not, that's not for people. And then you got the culture of masochism, told the people to painfully beat the sin out of themselves. If we just put the body through enough pain, then we can punish ourselves to be right with God, right? If I just... Now, you might say, well, we don't beat ourselves because we sin, Pastor Lance. Well, I'm saying sometimes we can have that heart, if we're honest. We can try to put our bodies, and we can try to bear white knuckle it to look more like Jesus and to be made right with God and other people. So we can't just jump on the masochists, because you know what? We would do something similar left to our own devices. We don't have to harm ourselves to keep the Old Testament law to be right with God. We can worship with one another and set our minds on things above and, and be clothed in Christ. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The New Testament is made up of gospels, epistles, personal letters, and you got the book of Revelation. It's big and scary, right? What we don't have in the New Testament is a set of rules or law like the canon or the Old Testament, right, to govern God's people. So in the Old Testament, you had the Pentateuch that governed God's people as a means of relationship to build with God's people between God and his people, right? In the New Testament, you see the gospel is spreading to Jews, Gentiles, various types of non-Jewish people groups. Galatians talks about this. Paul understands his audience. He is writing to people coming from polytheism and also some people who were super religious. So he understands not to place a burden on those who, not traditionally, who are not traditionally Jewish, but to remind the newcomers to Christ and to faith, to seek in all things Christ. As it relates to the Corinthian church, taking communion and drinking at the table of idols. Paul writes this, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul knew he was dealing with many different people coming from many different backgrounds. And so as we gather together, my challenge to myself and to you all, hey, if you're a little further along in your faith than somebody else, don't put a burden on somebody else. Walk with them that they mature in Christ Jesus. So all of these imperatives were to do with how we clothe ourselves in the community of God. But this, sets, but this set of verses 
that I'm going to transition to next is how we clothe ourselves in our home. So not only are we clothed in Christ in our community, in our church community, you can say, but point two, we are clothed in Christ in our family. All right, ladies, don't throw nothing at me. Verses 18 to 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. With these verses, I want to look at the dynamic between a husband and a wife and parents and children. The church that Paul was writing to had a cultural picture of marriage that we have to place into context to help us see why he wrote this. The imperatives he lays out to the Colossian church were countercultural, and some scholars would even say radical for this day. Now, if you know anything about Roman society, they didn't do anything halfway, right? Roads, buildings, scholarship. I mean, they, they kind of blew it up, right? The streets, entertainment. It was kind of like the Mecca of its day. The Roman family was a trip, let me put it that way. They had a particular dynamic that was um, interesting, to say the least. And in doing some research and prep for this, I wanted to think, well, what did the Roman family look like? Okay, now here we go. Maybe you know this already. The Roman father had absolute rule over his household and children. If they angered him, he had the legal right to disown his children, sell them into slavery, and even kill them, the wife included. Only the father could own property. Whatever their age until their father died, his sons only received an allowance to manage their own households. (laughs) Sons were important because Romans put a lot of value on continuing the family name. If a father had no sons, then he could adopt one, often a nephew, to make sure that the family line would not die out. Roman women usually married in their early teenage years, while men waited until they were in their mid-twenties. So you can imagine you got a young woman who is coming under the submission and the total submission of this man, who can do anything he wants with her if he sees fit, if she doesn't do something right. That's kind of messed up, guys. As a result, the woman was much usually was usually much younger than the man, the husband. As was common in Roman society, while men had former power, women exerted influence behind the scenes. It was accepted that the mother was in charge of managing the household. In the upper classes, she was also expected to assist her husband's career by behaving with modesty, grace, and dignity. But the influence of women only went so far. The father had the right to decide whether to keep newborn babies after birth. The midwife placed the babies on the ground. So essentially there was a practice of like, if a man and a woman had a baby, the midwife would customarily set the baby on the ground, and if he was like, all right, I'm going to take the baby, we're going we to accept this baby into our family, he'd pick, her, he'd pick the baby up, right? And that would say, all right, um, they're going to keep the baby. But if he just left the baby for reasons such as he didn't want it or they weren't in a good position, then that baby was just laying there, and ideally a peasant or a slave would have to care for that baby, right? And so kind of keep that in mind as we, we read these verses, right? Like, it may sound counterculture to us, but it, should, it was really counterculture to them, right? It was radical that Paul would use this language of how women and men and children are to submit to one another. What Paul was charging the Colossian church to do was to practice a family dynamic that submitted itself to the rule of Christ and not the culture of the day. Beginning with clothing themselves with the things of God and setting their mind on heavenly things, heavenly things which included how to live not solely for the Roman Empire, but as members of the kingdom of God. What Paul was proposing was radical. Paul begins his family life commission by saying, wives, submit to your husbands. But don't miss this, as fitting in the Lord. Ah, yes. Ladies, you're like, see, I told you. (laughs) Paul very well knew the harshness of Roman society, Paul was in jail himself a lot, right? He's in jail as he's writing this book. So he knew that that the Roman institution could be a harsh one at times. 
Paul did not give greater details on what that looked like here in Colossians, but I think we have to look at this verse in context as to what Paul had previously mentioned about putting on the new self and how the believer is to walk in humility, forgiveness. So men, as you are the head of your household and your wife is actually submit to you, you model humility, forgiveness, bearing with them in love. This naturally would apply to Christian households. Paul also knew that a woman could gain her independence. This is another cultural reference. So submission to a man, when you could legally be free of male control, if you had enough kids, was a big deal. So if she had enough kids, she could say, you know what, I'm good. She's recognized as an independent woman. But Paul says, submit to your husbands. Ladies, hear me say, as your pastor, as one of the pastors, sisters in Christ, while the world may call you subservient at times, while male headship is often scoffed, mocked, and dare we say brutal, we get scoffed at, and if we're honest, it can find our way in our own churches. Please know that it is an act of obedience and pleases God that you serve your husbands and submit to your husbands. For any man who is saying amen for the wrong reason this morning, know that God is serious about his bride and his daughters. If you are a woman here today and you are wrestling with this call to submit to your husband, if you are a single sister and you're like, I got to submit to some dude one day? Dear sister, look no further than Jesus. Yes, the Jesus we mentioned in Colossians 1, who is the preeminent one of all creation. Yes, the Jesus who holds all things together. Yes, the Jesus who made all things. Yes, the Jesus who's the firstborn of creation, the image of the invisible God. Yes, the Jesus that we talked about is the picture of perfect submission. The most powerful man to ever walk the earth was also a picture of perfect submission. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, let this mind be in you, which, is, which also in, is in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself at, of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. John fourteen ten. This is Jesus speaking. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, that I, I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. And there's plenty of other verses that talks about Jesus's submission, Jesus in the garden, sweating blood and tears. And he's like, can this cup pass? Not your will, not my will, but your will be done, right? Sisters in Christ, take heart in what Christ has done for you and has modeled for you. When you consciously submit to your husband, as this word submit describes, Paul is not yelling at women. He's not degrading women. He's telling them to make a conscious decision to submit themselves to their husband in a way that honors and reflects what Christ has already done in his relationship with his father, God the Father, and done for every believer in our salvation. Submit. Submission is a picture of obedience an obedience that was first modeled by Jesus. Fear not, fret not. Sisters, you are not called to submit to any false teachings or sin or abuse, but only that which is of Christ. You are not a second-tier Christian. You are not a second-tier human or a second-tier part of creation. You are loved, called, chosen. You're the ones who worship with the tambourine. Yes, Sister Miriam, when God delivered his people out of Egypt, she bust out that tambourine, right? You are the spiritual family line of the women who washed Jesus' feet, of the woman who washed Jesus' feet. She embalmed his body with that precious gift that was worth more than we will ever know. She emptied it all out, she emptied it all out for the one who was emptied out for her. Yes, you women who are in the legacy of Ruth, who in her submission and loyalty to Naomi gave us David, who gave us King Jesus. Yes, women of faith, you women of faith, who are in the line of Mary, Elizabeth, Sarah, and the line goes on and on. Women of God bear the image of Christ. You clothe yourself in his image as you faithfully submit to your husband as he follows Christ. Fellas, our turn. Colossians 3 verse 19 reads, Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. 
As I mentioned earlier, this was countercultural for Paul's charge as a husband was to love his wife and not be bitter towards her. This is a context in which if he didn't like what she wore or did or said, then chances are they're going to believe him over her and she can, he can just cast her out into society and furthermore have her killed. Love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. A husband had a great deal of authority in the wife, in the life of his family. He could bring about death and despair if he wanted to. But husbands, we have a different charge. We have a charge to love as Scripture tells us. This may sound easy, right? Like, yeah, I know to love my wife. I get it. I've been reading Ephesians for years. But this is not a mushy feeling. It's not butterflies in the pit of your stomach. It's not blushing over coffee. It's not a giddy text message. This is a love characterized by first understanding the relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church. Ephesians 5.25 tells us that Christ gave himself up for her, the church, and that husbands are to wash their wives in the word of God. That type of love is the opposite of Genesis 3.16, where Moses states that the man, that the curse of the woman was that she would rule over, he would rule over her. We're not here to rule over women, guys. We're here to wash them and to sacrifice ourselves so that they may look more like Jesus. Fellas, we have the privilege to love our wives well. Let me challenge us, as Robert Lewis has spoken before. We can be real men. Sorry, ladies, I don't have one of these for you. We can be real men, relational, encouraging, authentic, and loving. We can also reject passivity, expect God's return in our obedience, accept responsibility, and lead courageously. This is not a charge to men to be half Spartan and half Idris Elba but wholeheartedly dressed in the things of God, dressed in vulnerability, sacrifice, integrity, forgiveness, gentleness, being in the legacy of men like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Fellas, sometimes you won't see what's around the corner for your job, your career, your, your housing, your finances, your family. You, you're not going to see everything, but we do have a call to submit to God in, in our obedience to him. So men, love your wives as Christ gave himself for you. The last thing I want to draw out in my second point this, in this, morning, this morning is the relationship between parents and children. Kids, you're not off the hook. Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents. This is different language used for the relationship between a man and a woman. A wife has to submit to her husband. A child is to obey his or her parents. The word here is obey with the fourth commandment in mind in the Old Testament. Children, obey your parents, right? Obedience is the idea behind the relationship as obedience to one's parents. Please the Lord. Kids, youth, children, you may feel like, why am I obeying? Doesn't pay off. I don't get my allowance on time. It's not worth it. I want to do what I want to do. But guess what, kids? Just like Jesus can identify with your dad and your mom and men and women, he can identify with you too. Yes. Luke 2.52 tells us, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and favor with man. And I reference Luke 2.52 because in Luke chapter 2, Jesus is a young boy in the temple teaching, doing his thing, right? Being obedient to his father. His parents lose him on a road trip, more or less. They go back and find him. They're worried. They're like, where have you been? We've been looking for you. Curfew. Come on home. Get in the van. We got to go. And Jesus, being God in the flesh, even at 12, right, says, I'm going to do my father's business, but I'm going to come back with y'all. That's obedience. Not many kids in here. But that's obedience, right? And so even Jesus, holding all power in his hand, yes, even at 12 years old, said, all right, I'm going to hop on this donkey. We can go home. So as we see the relationship between all the family members, as they submit to one another, as they love one another, it's all a reminder of what the imperatives tell us to do, to what the, indic what the indicatives say we are, to who the indicatives say we are. In our first point, we talked about being clothed in Christ in our community. 
In our second point, we talked about being clothed in Christ in our homes. In our third point, we deal with being clothed in Christ in the workplace. Being clothed in Christ in the workplace. Colossians 3, verse 24 to 25 to 4, 1. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done. And there is no favoritism. Verse four, verse four, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Let me deny the evils of chattel slavery in the 16th century in this country. This is not a submission to race-based chattel slavery. Let me repeat. This is not a submission to race-based chattel slavery. This is not a submission to um, women who are kidnapped for a group or a man's sexual pleasures. This is not a submission to being sold in modern-day society. So bond servants, as you have heard from the pulpit before here, this is not chattel slavery. This is not an endorsement of slavery or sex trafficking. Paul is merely addressing all the interpersonal relationships that would have existed in his cultural context. In Colossians 4, verse 9, Paul invites the church to see Onesimus, as a faithful and loved brother as one of them. You remember Onesimus? Onesimus is in the book of Philemon, right? In verse 7, in, in chapter 4, Paul writes to Tychicus, 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 our dearly loved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you, will tell you all the news about me. Paul, this is Paul at the end of this book. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are and so that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, that was the former slave, a faithful and dearly loved brother who is one of you, right? And that's a reference back to Onesimus, a slave from the book of Philemon. So even Paul addressed this and sought to rectify that relationship because he was chosen, holy, loved, and set apart even then even in that moment. He's a slave, but they need, he was a slave, but now they address him as a brother. Onesimus is such a great case because he is living proof of how biblical authors thought that the situation should have, how they thought it should have been handled. We know that it was a rare occasion back in the 17th century when a black man or a black woman or a black family was seen as a whole person but I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, in light of anything you may be feeling from our cultural context today, as a believer in Christ, we have an obligation to see every person as a brother or sister. And even more so that if you are feeling the weight of your ethnicity right now, not because something's wrong with you, but because what you may see on TV, what people may be doing to different people, know that as a believer in Christ, you are loved, chosen, and set apart. A little more practicality in this verse is a workplace environment. I know some of you are managers and supervisors. Be mindful of your conduct towards your employers. Be mindful of how you interact with them, even when they do wrong. Yes, there's a protocol, possibly, I'm sure. But how are you even speaking to them and interacting with them that, in a way that models Christ? You can still be humble when you're right. If we work for someone or have to answer to someone, like most of us do, I suppose, in a chain of command, be mindful that Paul char charges the servant not to work as if no one is watching, only to please man, but to work unto the Lord. If your boss is not the best communicator, leader, etc., I've talked to you, some of you, we still have to clothe ourselves in the things of God and to set our minds on the things that are above. So if you're a child, a mother, a woman, a husband, a wife, 
an employee, an employer, a Christian, a member of the body of Christ. Our position in Christ allows us to perform in Christ. What Christ says is true of who we are allows us to do for him. We are clothed in Christ in our community. We are clothed in Christ in our homes. And we are clothed in Christ in the workplace. And the beauty is, Revelation gives a beautiful picture of us in heaven, in glory. And it says that, that we are wearing the white robes. And he, Christ, is wearing the blood-soaked robe. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. That we who were created in the image of God, right? That we in our fallen state could not get right with God on our own terms. But it was Jesus who lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve. As Romans tells us that our sin causes us to deserve death, separation from God for all of eternity. But yet we wear those white robes. We wear those heavenly clothes. You talk about some church clothes. Those are the church robes that we can look forward to wearing one day in glory. So if you're here today and you have not placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you want that white robe and you want to go, with, you want to go see Jesus and all of that swag, man, put your faith in what he did today. If these verses were hard for you, they only make sense in the context of a holy and righteous God redeeming a people that could not redeem themselves to himself. That's the only way these verses make any sense at all, as hard as they are, even then and now. And so I say, we can clothe ourselves in Christ and set our minds on the things above. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you emptied yourself out for us, who sometimes we just want to hold it all for us, Father. Father, when it's hard, sometimes we can flee. Sometimes we can fall back into old patterns. But when it was hard for you, you were most obedient, even through the blood, sweat, and tears, Father. That your model of humility, of love, of sacrifice is one that we can set our minds on to model you in our community, in our homes, and in our work environments, Father. And so I thank you for this word this morning, and may you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.